0: Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode,
1: we grossly lack mother and baby beds in the hospital where we work. We have only one dedicated bed for postnatal women. At the National Institute of Mental Health, which covers the whole island, they have several beds.
0: Dr. Arani and Prof Lalith discuss their paper Maternal Mental Health Services in Sri Lanka: Challenges and Solutions.
2: Hi there, my name is Sachin, I am a general adult psychiatrist working in London.
0: And I suppose it depends when this goes out. Um, let's see, it's June, it'll probably come out in August, in which case, hi there, I'm Hamilton, and I'm a core psychiatric trainee in London.
2: You're really rolling the dice on whether that actually worked out.
0: <laughs> yes, well, let's see if uh, fortune is in my favour. <laughs>
2: Okay, today we are discussing the paper, Maternal Mental Health Services in Sri Lanka, Challenges and Solutions. Hami, what is this paper about?
0: Well, Sachin, this paper is all about the fact that there has been fantastic progress with regards to indicators of physical maternal health care in Sri Lanka over the last few decades. However, there is a disparity in that maternal mental health care problems remain a significant issue in the country. And this is due to a number of issues, including lack of awareness amongst local level health care workers, impaired service integration, and existing stigma with regards to mental health disorders in the perinatal period.
2: It was really good to look into this paper because we've already looked at one account of mental health services within sri lanka when we spoke to dr miru chandradasa and this is our first time honing in on maternal mental health care
0: yes last time it was a focus on mental health care of women in sri lanka wasn't it a related but not identical topic of course
2: Before we head into the interview, we should cover the country profile that the paper starts with, just so we get our bearings. I know that my worldwide cultural knowledge is that of a swine. (laughs) So Sri Lanka is an island, in case you didn't know, (laughs) situated in the Indian Ocean, and it gained its independence from the UK in 1948. The paper says it is slowly but steadily rebuilding itself from devastations caused by more than three decades of ethnic conflict, the Indian Ocean tsunami on Boxing Day 2004, and the Easter Sunday
0: bombings of 2019. In 2019, the World Bank categorised Sri Lanka as a country with an upper-middle income economy. There are roughly 21.2 million people in the country with a gender ratio of 93.8 men per 100 women. Just over a quarter of the population are women between the ages of 15 and 49. And most of the population, just over three quarters, live within the rural sector. And I seem to recall from our last podcast regarding Sri Lanka, the fact that the female literacy rate is particularly good in Sri Lanka, as it's 94.5%, and... In terms of education, 56.4% of the female population had completed education up to secondary level.
2: You love to see it.
0: Mm.
2: And the paper describes the demographics of Sri Lanka. It's a multi-ethnic society with Buddhism, a religion that emphasizes equal rights for women, being the religion of 70% of the population and 90% of the Sinhalese population, followed by Hinduism, which is... of the population, followed by Islam, 8%, and Roman Catholic, 7%. And I think those demographics are important because in the interview, we do get on to talking about some of the spiritual beliefs with regards to mental health within Sri Lanka, including with regards to demon possession being thought of as a cause for mental illness. And taking us through the paper are the authors, Professor Lalith and Dr. Aruni. So let's not waste any more time and hear from them about maternal mental health care services in Sri Lanka.
3: Sounds good. I am Lalith Kuru and then consultant adult psychiatrist and a senior professor of psychiatry. So academically oriented also attached to the University of Kalani.
2: Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us
3: online. We are engaged in looking after the mothers with mental health problems in this country, so we feel like producing this article.
1: I'm Dr. Aruni Hapangamia. I'm currently the head of Department of Psychiatry at the Faculty of Medicine, University of Calais Sri Lanka. I'm also a board certified consultant in psychiatry. I have a special interest in perinatal mental health, just like Professor Guru Parati said, we have been doing some research regarding prevalence and other issues regarding postnatal and antenatal mental health issues. Apart from my training here in Sri Lanka, I had some postgraduate training in Melbourne, Australia as well, again, related to the same issues.
2: This is a great article to follow up with a previous one that we'd spoken about on the podcast called Gender Disparity as a Threat to the Mental Wellbeing of Young Sri Lankan Women by Dr. Miru Chandradasa. And your article similarly describes a changing society and changing culture in Sri Lanka. What has been the impact of changing culture and society on women in Sri Lanka?
1: In our country, like during the last, say, so many hundred years, even before we became colonies of Western countries, women have been given an important position in the society, but after post-independence from the UK, I think uh, women have been given more roles, especially with the introduction of the free education system where girls go to school through primary, secondary and tertiary education. and In fact, World Bank figures have shown that uh, Sri Lankan women have an education and literacy level in par with the so-called high income countries. So in a way, most of the Sri Lankan women are in par, but maybe they're not in the same sort of positions as their male counterparts. So that is with regard to the education. However, the socio-cultural changes, if you look at that, we have lived in extended families for a long time, but with the changes in the society here in Sri Lanka, women also prefer when they marry or when they are living together, to live with their partner or their husband rather than maybe with the extended family. So there are certain changes which the newer generations of Sri Lankan women follow as well
3: basically as you mentioned the essence of the family structure what happened to sri lankan families we had as you mentioned extended families and over the last few years the pattern has been changing but the important thing is still the people in this country they have links with the families compared to the western extended families sri lankan extended families are somewhat different even though they are living in urban areas like nuclear families now this one is a somewhat different nuclear family with close links with the relatives most of the time but sometimes they don't have close links so when they have problems they find difficult to cope whereas most families still fortunately they have links that's a difference between the real extended and the real nuclear families also, because that's important in management, there are various issues with regard to this, really. Sometimes external feminists are pretty over involved. Sometimes there are a lot of beneficial effects.
2: I think that's something that you hint towards, is that this changing culture may have a double impact on women. I think the other thing you mentioned about women's increasing status in terms of education, and I know that uh, Dr. Chandra Dasa suggested that you're heading towards a state where women are going to be more educated than men are, these increasing work duties on women accompanied by a reduction in family support, although you do mention there is still extended family support, may increase stress upon women in terms of having a dual role in society?
1: I think it does, because playing the role of the mother and the uh, working woman. Maybe like, you know, it depends on the role you play in the society or at the workplace. Yes, definitely it will play some level of stresses, but again, it depends on the tolerability of the woman, her coping skills, and of course, the levels of support they have from their extended families. Some people are used to living on their own, they don't need extra help, whereas some women may feel that they need extra help, especially during bringing up young children. And especially during this period where there's a COVID pandemic ongoing, women have to go to work, there's no place to keep the children. So it's juggling of the work as opposed to being a good mom. Let's just talk about
2: healthcare provision in Sri Lanka in general. I was interested in this term medical officer of health, looking into it, it seems that only a small number of countries share this unit based preventative care model called medical officer of health. And from what I can see, it's basically the smallest administrative division of public health that exists in Sri Lanka, and it can cover anywhere between 60,000 to 100,000 people. Can you just describe to me what the medical officer of health system is?
1: Medical Officer Health System is where a doctor, who has been appointed by the Ministry of Health, looks after a specific area in the country. So for ease of governance, our country is divided into 25 administrative zones. So each of these zones is divided again to smaller areas, and these zones have their own sort of administrative officer, And then to look after the health and well-being of the population in that particular area, a doctor is appointed and his title is Medical Officer of Health. So he's a graduate of one of the state universities with a degree of MBBS, basically that's a basic medical degree we give to Western medical practitioners. They may also have some basic other qualifications maybe in child health and they supervise several other personnel under them so there are public health inspectors public health nurses and public health midwives so the midwife plays a huge role in looking after antenatal and postnatal period all these personnel report back to the Medical Office of Health who then reports it to his supervisors in the central government.
2: What is the coverage of maternal healthcare like in Sri Lanka? And I understand that the majority of healthcare is publicly funded or government funded. How much of this care reaches mothers, say, at antenatal birth and postnatal periods?
1: In our country currently, regarding the maternal child well-being, all districts are well covered with this system. However, there are certain areas which may not have enough resources, be it the doctors or the hospitals, to provide the support. Say in Kalamu, which is the capital city, the ratio between doctors and the population might not be that large or there's a huge disparity. Whereas when you go to more rural areas, these numbers may increase so that there are lesser number of doctors to serve the given population.
3: In fact, if you look at this MOH, Medical Office of Health, they are government-run organizations. And then these midwives, they visit all the houses normally, particularly in the rural areas. Whereas in the, you know, urban areas, private sector is also well-developed and many mothers may get registered under MOHS but they visit these private hospitals to get opinions and to get them checked and seen by consultants, particularly gynecologists and obstetricians and they are followed up in the private sector so this, in addition to the government sector the private sector is also reasonably developed with regard to maternal care, particularly in urban areas
2: Yes, and you've noted that around 94% of all deliveries take place in a public sector health facility. And it's 100% in rural areas with I guess the remaining private care usually happening within urban areas. But it is impressive, for example, that 85% of postnatal mothers will receive at least one postnatal visit from a midwife. So there seems to be Fairly strong coverage. 95% of expectant mothers are registered for antenatal care before 12 weeks of pregnancy. So it's good coverage.
1: I think Sachin, it is due to the very well laid-out resources in that area regarding the physical well-being of the woman and the child, because these people whom we discussed earlier, they have been trained very well and there are enough resources to cover that area.
2: And it's resulted in a dramatic reduction in maternal mortality. Exactly. The maternal mortality ratio was 92 per 100,000 live births in 1990, and it's gone down to 36 per 100,000 in 2017.
1: It is correct. It's due to the improvement in the resources the money they spend on developing these resources and also recruiting more people to provide the services as well as possibly, you know, more hospitals are being built and the women are educated about various complications, physical complications of pregnancy and postpartum. So there are a lot of educational campaigns going on that regard here in Sri Lanka, possibly, which gives rise to the reduction which has been noted in the maternal mortality rates.
2: Now, this gets on to the core of your article, which is that Sri Lanka does boast a huge improvement in maternal health care, but it may not be matched by the mental health care side of things. What is the process if a expectant mother or a postpartum mother is found to have mental health issues?
1: So like Professor Kuruparachi earlier said, unlike in some more developed countries, we do not have an exact referral process. But generally, women who are being followed up at the medical office of health clinics, when they pick up any mental health issues, either the public health midwife or the medical office of health, when they pick up. Uh, issue with the mental health or well-being of the woman or sometimes even domestic violence or social issues they refer the woman to the nearest government hospital which has a consultant psychiatrist most of our hospitals currently have a consultant psychiatrist in working in most of the district hospitals so they refer and we see the woman and If she needs admission, we arrange that. Otherwise, we arrange follow-up. Say, if it's needing our review frequently, we get her down to one of our outpatient clinics. Or otherwise, if the medical officer of health is confident that they can manage and we have a closer link with them, we refer them back to them. So that is regarding mainly the antenatal women. Whereas in postnatal, Women, when the midwife visits in people who can speak Sinhalese, the midwives have been trained to administer the Sinhalese version of the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale. So if they detect symptoms as per the scale, or especially if they say they are suicidal, they are allowed to refer the patient directly to us, to the nearest psychiatrist. The other methods they come to the attention of the psychiatrists are either to general practitioners or the gynecologist or sometimes the pediatricians. They pick up issues because the newborn baby is brought by the mother and complaining of various issues and they pick up something is not correct with the mother, so they refer. And that is how people are referred to the government sector. Similarly, to the private sector, they are referred through the gynecologists or the obstetricians, or the pediatricians, or maybe sometimes physicians, because some of these women, they have panic attacks and they go to the physician, or they are general practitioner. They are the general methods, but sometimes rarely cultural or religious leaders, because these women, they have certain beliefs in the cultural aspects, causing various mental health issues, they go to them, but these people, they have some education about various mental health issues. So the ritualistic healers or religious leaders, they themselves refer these women to us. So there are various ways how they come to the attention of the psychiatrist.
3: In Sri Lanka, the people they themselves can get referred. That's called self-referral. They can come to any general hospital because the catchment areas are not well defined like in the UK and other countries, so people can go to any hospital in Sri Lanka. So they themselves get referred or come to the hospital or to the private sector. That's another way of seeing psychiatrists in this country, in addition to what Dr. Aruni mentioned.
2: Now, speaking of any hospital in Sri Lanka, that does make me just wonder, what is the provision like in terms of, is there a sufficient number of psychiatric beds, but more particularly of mother and baby units?
1: We grossly lack mother and baby beds. In the hospital where we work, we have only one dedicated bed for postnatal women. At the National Institute of Mental Health, which covers the whole island, they have several beds. In addition, some of the other hospitals have maximum one to two beds, but definitely not enough to cater to the needs of postnatal mental health issues. Some of the private hospitals do have beds, but they are mainly limited to the capital city or the more developed areas of the country, so the access is very limited to people from rural areas or who do not have money to spend on these private beds.
2: obviously is a question which requires an understanding of what the demand is. And your paper suggests that there's a prevalence of antenatal depression within mothers of 16.2% and postpartum depression of 27.1%. So it appears that there is a very large need for mental health services for maternal psychiatric care. What did you find out about the risk factors for postpartum depression?
1: In the second study, which we mentioned, so that this particular study is done in one part of the country. We have also done a similar study with um, similar figures of prevalence. So like this study, we also found that people with a lower income level, people who have more than three children already, or people who have lost their mothers when they were younger, were risk factors, as well as if they had a previous mental health issue, which was either not detected or treated, or even if they were detected and treated, all these factors acted as risk factors in them developing postnatal mental health issues.
2: The other prevalence that you note is the prevalence of maternal suicide, which is monitored through the Maternal Death Surveillance and Response System, which began in 1981, and you know it's a study conducted in a rural district of Sri Lanka, which Mm -hmm. reported that 17.8% of recorded maternal deaths were due to suicide, and that 79% of the women who had died by suicide were under the age of 30. And maternal suicide has increased. Why do you think that is?
1: Such Sachin, one reason might be because we have a better system in recording deaths. So more deaths might be detected and recorded. However, we can't sort of put all the figures down to that. There are a lot of changes in our society. So like we told when we started the conversation, a uh, lot of changes in the socioeconomic status of the women, lot of stressors, changing economic levels. People are under more stress, and our country had a lot of issues in the past, especially this particular study was done in one of those areas which was affected by the three-decade-long ethnic conflict. Then those areas were again affected by the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. So on top of the general day-to-day stressors, our people have been Facing some other additional stressors, which may increase prevalence of especially depression and hence maybe of suicide.
2: You mentioned three decades of ethnic conflict and the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. One more social stressor that you mentioned within the paper was domestic violence, which obviously is a stressor globally, but that made me look into what prevalence rates have been recorded in Sri Lanka and it's not uh very consistently reported i've seen some papers saying that it's just not recorded very well some papers saying that prevalences have been tracked from 17% up to 82% what is the state of domestic violence within sri lanka
1: so like you pointed out it varies depending on how the researcher looks at it so because domestic violence can range from emotional violence to physical to verbal so it might vary on what factor you look at so the figures are generally recorded around 17 to 20 and I think our professor Guru Parachi has done some research in the area where we work um, so do you want to highlight on that
3: yeah, in fact it depends on the study and the area where you do this study we have done research at the OPD outpatient department in the Ragamah General Hospital where we work and in fact uh, it's pretty high maybe 20 more than that even and then in fact there is a underestimation of domestic violence because our females they don't want to disturb the families and they think that it's better not to report and some people they believe culturally it's better not to report about these things so it's pretty much underestimated so I think it must be higher than what we see Perhaps we may have seen the tip of the iceberg here, with regard to the domestic violence. So I think we need to do more research work with regard to this really.
2: One thing that has been noted in 2005, legislation against domestic violence was brought in Sri Lanka. Has there been any noted improvement of things since then?
1: So the judicial medical officers have been given more sort of powers and so has been the police. There's a women's desk instituted in every police station these days so that women who want to complain or other people, they can come to this women's desk, they can ask for help. In fact, we have seen lately that the police officers in charge of these women's desks do refer women or married couples with such issues to us, which I think is an improvement which was brought about by the change in legislation regarding domestic violence. There are placards, billboards everywhere that uh, say no to domestic violence. Children are educated in schools that domestic violence is not healthy, not good. Women are educated during their antenatal and postnatal clinics about domestic violence. So things have changed. It needs a bit more work in order to find Mm -hmm. out the exact prevalence and also to find the risk factors and how to reduce this violence towards women.
2: Now, you had previously mentioned that one pathway to psychiatric services actually can be through local spiritual healers. Something that your report mentioned was that some patients will seek demonological and astrological remedies.
1: So Sachin, as in most countries in our region, most of our people believe in various cultural beliefs, including astrological beliefs, where from birth, most of us have been made a document called a horoscope, which mentions the zodiac sign we belong to and various planetary alignments, when is the bad time to do things. So from the birth of the person until they die, during various events in the person's life, especially when it's an important event, our elders or our parents, Go to the astrologer and see what is a good time to do this particular thing so that you know it will be a success similarly in sickness and health these astrological sort of assumptions do have an impact especially in people living in rural areas for example say someone becomes psychotic they might say that a dead spirit or oh, an evil spirit is controlling me. So what the people believe is, a dead spirit has taken possession over this person's body. So they need to do a ritualistic treatment. So that is how they look at it. So that is what we try to mean by demonic possession. So what they do is, Instead of coming for treatment at the hospital where we give antipsychotics or other necessary treatments, they go for soothsayers or ritualistic healers trying to exorcise this demonic or the evil spirit from the person's. Body. Similarly, some people, when they are depressed, they may say that it is because the planetary system is not aligned correctly. So they may go to soothsayers who advise them to do maybe chanting of prayers, wear a precious stone in order for the planetary system to align correctly. So people have various beliefs, which at times actually might not be very harmful because, you see, it instills some hope in the person, something which we talk about in the recovery model, and also externalizes the blame on a planet or an evil force rather than blaming the person in developing the illness. And here in Sri Lanka, most psychiatrists, try to work with these beliefs and the, uh, the various religious and cultural norms rather than opposing these healers or the beliefs that people have rather than alienating. So we try to work with these beliefs and things so that we have a better therapeutic alliance. Having said that, some of the time these ritualistic treatment can be very expensive and also be very harmful to the patient because, for one, it will delay them coming to get the effective treatment which is freely available. Secondly, because various concoctions or the exorcism methods might actually be very harmful to the person. So, there are the disadvantages as well because of these belief systems.
3: In fact, we have done a study when I was working in rural hospital as a consultant, when I returned to Sri Lanka first from the UK. That was, I think, several decades ago, basically. And uh, there, what happened was, we found about 80% of mothers with postnatal depression or postnatal disorder, they seek ritualistic treatment in addition to the Western treatment. So, they go for both, really. Most of the people, even now, we treat them but they go for as Dr. Armin mentioned ritualistic healing methods as well so that's a thing which is happening here many people they seek ritualistic like at least uh, put in a chant a thread or something at least or else to go to this expensive exorcism but nowadays they don't go for exorcism as before things are getting different, changed but I think we are practicing being aware of this aspect as well here I think it is useful when
2: these services can be integrated in that way to prevent, as Lalith said, a delay in seeking medical services. And the other source of delay along the same track may be the stigma issues which you have raised. What is the attitude of society towards mental health issues?
1: In the past, mental illnesses carry a huge stigma so basically if one in the family a family member has a mental illness it means the whole family was basically ostracized from the society if there's a young female in the family she will never be able to marry because no one would want to marry from that household so they were marginalized in the society And if people are being admitted to hospital for a mental health issues, again, the same issue would happen and it will happen in the workplaces as well. Things are changing to the better currently, especially in the urban area, especially with the educational level of the people increasing Mm -hmm. and more information about mental illnesses being given on media and by doctors. However, I think still stigma plays a role because still people hesitate to come to hospitals, being admitted to a mental health unit, and especially receive treatments like electroconvulsive therapy, which they have huge fears of. So I must say that a stigma still plays a major role in delaying people in coming to hospital and especially considering if you consider the postnatal mental health issues like uh, Professor Kuruparati said earlier, because when they develop postnatal mental disorders, their elders may take them to ritualistic healers before coming to the hospital, which may delay in them getting the effective treatments. So we've identified
2: numerous let's say, hurdles towards receiving mental health care and just particular reasons why the progress seen in maternal health care in general may not be matched by the mental health care side of things. Is this issue and the need for development of mental health services being adequately addressed within policy?
1: Sri Lanka has developed a new policy regarding maternal child well-being and which actually includes mental health. I um, together with several other psychiatrists have been invited to develop a chapter, which is about educating the medical officers of health and the grassroots workers regarding detecting and screening mental health issues in antenatal and postnatal women. We are also trying through the family health bureau, which is the main government organization, which look after the antenatal and postnatal women. So we are also trying to get the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale translated into Tamil so that we can cater to the Tamil speaking people of our country. So living in various parts so that all are getting the needed support. So yes, to answer your question with the changes in the policies, we are addressing these issues somewhat.
3: Now in Sri Lanka the undergraduate medical curricula we have five subjects in the final MBBS including psychiatry. Psychiatry has been given the equal status as general medicine surgery and so on. So in undergraduate curricula we improve the psychiatric input in addition to the general adult psychiatry we added this maternal health as well. So I think the grassroots level doctors so the the doctors who are qualifying they are having a better knowledge than before to pick up these things early and then to treat or refer to appropriate places.
2: We are now, I guess, getting onto specific improvements that you have recommended for the development of mental health care for expectant and postpartum mothers. And you've touched on the need for improvements to screening and training and I know that your report has mentioned a need for improved public education with regards to mental health issues. One other aspect you mentioned is to address the unequal distribution of services.
1: So like I mentioned earlier, the more populated or more personal uh, in terms of medical officers of health, midwives psychiatrist, whereas rural areas have lesser number of people to serve that population. So that is something which has been highlighted in the policy paper and also been brought up to the level of the government and the colleges which are involved in looking after these women. Basically, the Sri Lanka College of Psychiatrists and Sri Lanka College of Community Physicians sri lanka college of gynecologists and Obstetricians. they are involved in training these personnel in order to detect mental illnesses in the antenatal and postnatal women quickly this is a program which has been rolled out by the family health bureau which is the main organization who looks after pregnant or postpartum women in addition the other main issue like i said earlier is lack of beds for postnatal women so we have been asking that at least one to two beds be dedicated to postnatal women in at least every general hospital because then if they have the mother and the baby bed Mothers who are not too risky can keep the baby with them, with the support of the staff and a family member. So that is something which we have been asking for in developing the services and the resources for our people.
2: Another aspect you mention is to improve continuity of care. What are the issues with continuity of care at the moment?
1: The main issues are, suppose a woman is treated at a hospital when they are discharged. So, like Professor Kuruparachi earlier said, a person living say 200 kilometers away from the hospital which I work might come to us to seek treatment. And then on discharge, we generally offer them where would you like to be followed up. I mean, obviously, we have to look at the feasibility of them coming. This far with the little baby and the money they have to spend so if they want to come to us we give them referral otherwise we refer them to the nearest psychiatrist but sometimes unfortunately what happens is because after about four ECTs or after about one month of medication when they improve despite education that, you know, they need to continue the medication for the stipulated time period, they may stop and they might be lost to follow up. So one thing which we have done to prevent that is, in addition to being referred to the local psychiatrist, we also refer them to the medical office of health in that particular area. We tell that this particular lady, after taking consent from them, is being discharged we have arranged follow up in this particular clinic. Please ensure when you are visiting them at home that they have attended the clinic. If not, please inform the local psychiatrist or us so that we can arrange follow up. But it might not happen all the time because it depends on the dedication of so many
3: people. In the future, we are going to train this community psychiatrist. The PJM is going to have a sub-specialty with to community psychiatry and perhaps maybe in years time, we might be able to refer these people to them really for follow-up, but not at the moment. Finally, the need for
2: the mental health teams and the maternal health services to better integrate. Is there insufficient integration at the moment and how can it be improved?
1: So like I said earlier, Sachin, it depends on the personnel at both ends. So, even though the policy says this is how it should be done, it does not happen all the time, especially if the patient is from a very far away area. So, how we are trying to improve it is by writing a formal letter to the area Medical officer of Health. In fact, ringing them sometimes and documenting that they have been contacted And giving them the number and the address of the public health midwife so that they are not lost to follow up. So the various organizations, including the Family Health Bureau, the Ministry of Health, and the various colleges which are involved in training these people, getting together and trying to involve a better system where these women are not lost to follow up.
2: And... Just to touch on the mental health care side of things in terms of the workforce. How diverse is the psychiatric workforce?
1: Currently, the workforce, if you take one unit is led by a consultant psychiatrist. Most of the units have nurses, but they do not have a specific training as in a degree in mental health, they are general adult nurses because we do not have a mental health degree in nursing. Most of the units have a psychiatric social worker. Some units have occupational therapists. Very rarely do units have a psychologist. In addition, we have a person called a community psychiatry nurse who links the hospital with the MOH or other local providers of health who also visits homes of these people together with the psychiatric social worker because like in some of the Western countries, most of our services are based in hospitals. Our community clinics are based in hospitals. However, we are trying to improve the access of these services to the people in the community by having home visits, but they do not happen, especially during these times because of the COVID outbreak. So that is an area which needs development.
2: This goes right along with Sri Lanka's progressing standards for gender diversity and the increasing education of women. How gender diverse is the psychiatric workforce in terms of thus having a workforce that looks like the community they are treating?
1: If you look at the psychiatrists, I think almost half and half uh, male to female, sir, do you agree?
3: Yeah, perhaps uh, nowadays the females are more than you. the males. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, because
1: more, I think, uh, graduates uh, who take that are females. But um, the nursing workforce is mainly female. And the psychiatric social workers, um, it may depend on the area, especially in the more urban areas, it's more females. But in rural areas, it might be male. Occupational therapist is mostly males. The few psychologists we have are females. So it's a mostly female led care team we have in Sri Lanka, except in very isolated instances.
2: All right. The other aspects you mentioned, obviously is a need to research further the prevalence and service needs of maternal mental health issues in Sri Lanka, which go on to inform policy and service development.
1: What is mostly lacking is you know, research, not only regarding epidemiology, basically prevalence-related studies, something which the lack in our country, treatment trials in this specific group of people because we rely on guidelines developed by Western countries. So that is an area which needs development in our country, but a lot of hurdles and also lack of resources for us to conduct Research in this area, so that is an area which needs a big development.
3: Yeah, I agree with Arone we, do, we need to do the research work to understand this area and then to find out effective ways of management. And in addition to that, uh, the service development is the other part of the story, which is pretty much lacking at the moment. So we need to highlight this important area, particularly with the help of the colleges. Sri Lanka College of Psychiatrists and perhaps Sri Lanka College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and Pediatricians with their child health. Excellent. Well, thank you again,
2: both for joining me, Aruni and Lalas, and for taking me through this paper.
1: Thank you for inviting us, Sachin.
2: Thank you very much, Sachin. The first thing that hits me, you know, I asked a few questions just about the education of women in Sri Lanka, dual role that they experience in Sri Lanka, physical health maternity services. Because I know that actually Sri Lanka is very progressive with regards to equal rights of women. And so I hope it didn't come off as me sort of fishing for a bad answer because I knew the answers were going to be very encouraging. We love to see it. We love to see the progress with women's education and... Obviously, the fact that Sri Lanka obtained equal voting rights for women only three years after did the UK. Sri Lanka boasts the first ever female prime minister in the world. Mm. It's all very cool stuff. You love to see it. Absolutely. And the other thing that that is reflected in, and again, I knew that I was going to get a good answer (laughs) so it's not like I was fishing for anything bad again but just how it's reflected in the gender diversity of the workforce because you want your mental health workforce to look like the community it serves
0: absolutely and I did like that bit towards the end of the interview the recognition that there's more and more female medical graduates So, really, the proportion of female to male psychiatrists is only likely to go up, which is a good thing.
2: Yeah. It is something worth considering, you know, this is about maternal mental health care, and so you'd expect a workforce who are able to better put themselves in the shoes of the women that they care for.
0: And not only that, I think from the patient perspective, just in the same way that if someone were to go to a GP for an intimate examination, just... The fact of the matter is they will more likely request or want to be seen by a doctor of the same gender. And given that we know that there already is stigma and there are barriers to accessing mental health services, anything that takes away one barrier for a patient, I think, can only be a good thing.
2: Right. The other thing that struck me was the fact that, as Prof Lalith said, you can pretty much in Sri Lanka rock up to any hospital in the country, mm. and request healthcare, which obviously is not the case here in the UK, where
0: it's all done by
2: cashmere area,
0: CCG. So I mean, of course, it depends, right? For elective things, sure, but we get all sorts of patients who. Well, in terms of emergency healthcare, yeah, 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 like trauma, you know, like ankle fractures. Where they're on holiday or visiting their family in the area, but they actually live somewhere else. And the ideal thing would be if they can wait and if they are happy to be repatriated to their local hospital. But sometimes, for whatever reason, that's just not possible. But yeah, generally, on the whole, it is kind of split up by area, isn't it? And certain areas have services that other areas don't.
2: Yeah. But I just wanted to mention on that point that, you know, clearly it might create some issues with regards to follow-up. And, you know, I I can see how if there is a particular hospital which is known to be better, that it might attract people from out of area, for example. And that's before you get into that hospital offering certain services which just aren't available locally. But then, yeah, as Dr. Aroni mentioned, you might get the situation of someone... Who's traveling very far to receive healthcare? And then, can they be expected to continue to do that with regards to follow up? So, I can see it logistically becoming quite difficult to manage.
0: Mm. I found it quite interesting just kind of reading about the general healthcare services in Sri Lanka and this position of medical officers of health. Yeah. It sounds like, unless I've completely misunderstood, so they work within primary care but they cover a defined area that perhaps would be quite large. So I'm just imagining, and I, I could have the completely wrong end of the stick, but I'm just imagining like a GP who also engages in public health and covers maybe a greater region than the average UK GP practice would, but I don't know.
2: Well, this is what I wondered was that it can't possibly be a single person. When I was reading about Medical Office for Health, I kind of assumed it was a department or an office for a particular area maybe staffed by multiple people and in some instances okay it makes sense like how it's described as some role which is involved with coordinating care and receiving feedback from various disciplines such as public health midwives and so maybe there's a coordination role going on there but then there were specific instances where it was mentioned like Oh, and we will alert the medical officer of health that we have referred a patient to XYZ service. And can you please make sure that this is actioned? And it's like, this person presumably covers a lot of people within their area. And (laughs) I'm wondering how they're able to manage that role. It boggles the mind.
0: Mm. Yeah, it must be a fairly demanding role, I imagine
2: so here 's a description from another paper is that the preventative care system of Sri Lanka is separated into geographic subdivisions known as the Medical Officer of Health Units. See, this is where I think it maybe it 's more than one person that cater for sixty thousand to a hundred thousand people established first in Kalutara in the Western province in nineteen twenty six The system now is expanded to the whole island. MOH area can be described as the smallest administrative division in public health in Sri Lanka. Internationally, only a handful of countries share a unit-based preventative health system similar to Sri Lanka. I mean, I think it is basically, you know, a public health system for defined areas.
0: And it looks like we have medical offices of health in the UK, apparently. As in the term used to be used in the UK on a regional basis but 1974 was replaced by the term community physician.
2: The other thing I wanted to mention, just with regards to the same thing, I guess, with the geographic logistics of managing maternal mental health, is the distribution of mother and baby units in Sri Lanka. And this is definitely a problem that we have in the UK, is that often there aren't any local mother and baby units available. And so if someone needs to be admitted to a mother and baby unit, they potentially could end up being sent quite far, which is just very stressful for the family. Mm. And you hear Dr. Irony describing that in her hospital, there is one dedicated bed and there is adequate provision in the National Institute of Mental Health. Now, the National Institute of Mental Health is in Angoda, and if you look up Angoda, which is in West Colombo, it's basically a village which is famous for having the National Institutes of Mental Health. And if you look at it on a map, you can just imagine how far people across the island may be required to go in order to use one of these beds, and she did say that the National Institute of Mental Health covers the entire island. So again, just having more distributed provision of mother and baby units would surely be ideal for not displacing patients and separating families.
0: Exactly. And we know that family support is such a big thing. And so it's just a shame if people have to be displaced and aren't able to access that support.
2: Now, the last thing I wanted to get onto is that we mentioned domestic violence within Sri Lanka and the... Differing prevalence rates. And after the interview, Prof. Lalith sent me a paper of his own original research dated in 2010. The name of the paper is A Study of Intimate Partner Violence Amongst Females Attending a Teaching Hospital Outpatient Department. And what they did was every day, the first 50 couples attending this outpatient department for whatever medical reason, were asked to participate in a study, so totaling around 250 participants, asking about their experience of domestic violence and the woman's attitudes regarding domestic violence. Now, already, whatever findings that this study had, you can imagine there's going to be some Reluctance to disclose, for example. Mm. But just to read the results, that of the 242 participants, 40% reported some form of abuse by their male partner. Prevalence of abuse reported was physical abuse of 19%. Verbal abuse, 23%. Emotional abuse, 23% and sexual abuse, seven percent. One quarter of those who had experienced physical violence had sought medical treatment for the injuries, but of them, only two, two individuals had disclosed the reason for the injury to medical staff. More than three quarters of those who were abused had been in the relationship for more than 10 years, and... One thing that I wanted to mention particularly was the attitudes towards abuse that they collected. They asked about attitudes regarding abuse to all women participating, whether they'd been abused or not. And the question was, should wives tolerate abuse? And a majority of the participants thought that abuse of all forms should be tolerated sometimes. Only a minority thought that it should never be tolerated.
0: I mean, that's just quite sad, isn't it? What exactly was the proportion?
2: So, for example, physical abuse. 52% of all women think that it should be tolerated sometimes. Even sexual abuse, 47% of all women surveyed think that it should be tolerated sometimes. In terms of people saying that it should never be tolerated... 23% of all women thought that physical abuse should never be tolerated. So these are the kind of the values we're looking at.
0: This was specifically just a survey of women with partners, is that correct?
2: Yeah, couples showing up in a North Colombo outpatient department.
0: Yeah, because it would just be interesting if there was any data on socioeconomic status and specifically income of the women responding to see if there's any discrepancy between women who technically would be financially independent without their partner in their responses to those who, for whatever reason, are financially dependent on their partner. Because of course, we know that in terms of trends in society, at least in this country, rates of divorce have increased as there's been less fear of both social ostracization as well as financial ruin from leaving a relationship. Yeah. But that's just something I don't know anything about in Sri Lanka, so it'd be interesting to learn about.
2: Yeah, well, I'll read this section. They said, it's interesting that the majority have responded to abuse by tolerating it without resistance. This could be due to a culturally accepted submissive role of women. It is noteworthy that 79% of those who have been abused stayed in the relationship for more than 10 years. Although the study did not explore the reasons behind this, it may be reasonable to assume that social and financial reasons... May have contributed to the phenomenon. I see. And just a quick note that abuse of alcohol by the spouse was seen in a majority of the abusers. And it has been suggested, says the paper, that most men use alcohol as a cultural timeout for antisocial behavior. Alcohol is used as an excuse to abuse their partners as they are not held responsible for what they do when they are intoxicated the role of alcohol in domestic violence in Asian societies has been highlighted in other studies. So some social determinants noted there as well. So thank you to Prof Lalith for sending us that paper, and you can check that paper out. It's called A Study of Intimate Partner Violence Among Females Attending a Teaching Hospital Outpatient Department. And if you want to check out the actual paper that we've been discussing today, it is... Called Maternal Mental Health Services in Sri Lanka Challenges and Solutions, published in the BJ Psych International Journal. Listeners, you know, I go through a lot of trouble to try and make the sound as clean as possible for you with me and Hammy talking, also without it. In- <laughs> Oh no. This is hilarious. You're kidding me.
0: As soon as you start talking about audio quality.
2: I know. (laughs) Ironically. Okay, fine. Listeners, you know, I go through a lot of trouble to try and keep audio quality clean, both when me and Hammy are talking, but also for our interviews. So one thing that you're missing out on is that when I was doing the interview with Prof Lalith and Dr. Aruni, was that outside my window you just hear so many birds but also from dr aroney's audio you could hear so many birds and just the combination was like we were recording <laughs> the interview in an aviary so i want to just play a little clip of the birds from doc aroney just to give you a sample because i really think you're missing out here <laughs>
0: Wow, yeah, that was really special.
2: (laughs) Giving you a little blast of nature with some Sri Lankan buds. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Sachin.
0: You sound like you were going to say something else.
2: I know. Uh, My name is Sachin.
0: And my name is Hamilton. Goodbye. Goodbye.
2: Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.